Well, it has been a joy to uh, be with you over the last week, and actually it will be 10 days tomorrow, and uh, I, I again, uh, I'm just thankful to the Lord every time I look around this congregation at what He has accomplished, and what He has brought together, the family of God, and uh, it is truly a humbling and a joy, joyous thing to come here and to visit you and to minister among you. And uh, as I was planning to come, one of the things that I was uh, thinking about was what I would preach on. And I decided early on the series on Micah, but I was unsure of what and how to conclude the series, because it was actually arranged around those three here statements. And so I, while I could have preached 20 sermons, it was probably easier to preach three than four. I thought, well, how, how will we cap off? this time of instruction. And uh, one of the things I think that we've seen in the, in the series in Micah is we see a lot of God's proclamation of judgment. But in the midst of judgment, we see God's salvation. And as I was meditating on it and thinking on it, I was thinking, what is, what is the actual embodiment of the grace of God? And that, I think, is the doctrine of adoption. That is really where we see the grace of the God come into 3D technicolor sound and virtual, not virtual, real reality in terms of God. So this evening I want to direct your attention to the book of 1 John chapter 3. And we're actually going to begin in chapter 2, reading at verse 28 here, and go to chapter 3 and verse 3. Now, just a little refresher, the book of 1 John is written to a people that are going through a very difficult time. They've had false teachers, and they don't even really know what a Christian really is. And so, the Apostle John writes to them about what a Christian is, and he gives them several tests. One of the tests is a moral test. Another test is, so a Christian is a Christian, is a person who not only says righteous things, but acts righteously. Another aspect that he gives them is doctrine. He said a Christian is someone who believes that God is, Jesus is the Son of God. Because many were denied in in those days. The false teachers had done that. One of the central tests, one of the central things that the Apostle John does is the test of love. He said, basically he presents that a Christian is someone who loves. They reflect their father. And so this chapter 3 here opens with a wonderful statement. But let's go back into chapter 2 for a moment. And now, verse 28, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence, and not shrink from him to shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let us pray. 
Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here tonight, for the privilege of worshiping a God who not only forgives our sins, but brings us into his presence, adopts us into his family. We pray, O Lord, for this church family. I thank you for what you have done with Covenant Reformed Baptist Church of Barbados, how that you have knit together their hearts in service to you. We pray, O Lord, that you would increasingly strengthen them, that they delight in you as a family, that they reflect the wonderful unity and the wonderful diversity and the wonderful joy of relationship that is even found in you, O Lord. Lord, we pray that you would help this church to be more like Christ, to show forth the love of Jesus Christ more powerfully. We thank you, O Lord, that you are a gracious God, that you forgive us our sins, that you bring us into relationship with you. We pray, O Lord, tonight, if there are any here who do not know that wonder and that joy, may they come, even this evening, even this weekend, to faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for those who know that tonight, Lord, we would be reminded of our family identity and our joy and our ability to come before the God who calls us and who adopts us. Bless us now, Lord. Help me to preach the word faithfully. Use me as an instrument of your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's an old saying, and that saying is, friends are the family that you choose. Friends are the family that you choose. But while that statement, I think, is beautiful in and of itself and powerful, if there is one thing in our life that we cannot choose, it is our blood family cannot choose who our mother is. She is just our mom. We cannot choose who our father is. He is just our dad. Now, some of you here this evening might have good relationships with your parents. Others, maybe not so good. But the fact is that they are your parents. And like it or not, you are like them at least in some ways. Sometimes it's a a physical resemblance. Other times it's reflected in character and temperament. Sometimes one child is more like one parent in some things than others. Various times in my life, for example, my daughters, Hannah and Abigail, as they're growing up, look very much like my wife did. When she was that age. In fact, if you look at some of her school pictures and you see some of my girls' school pictures, they look very much like her. Not very much like me. One of the ways that I, that people see my daughter is the way that she smiles. And she's, they see her smile and my smile and they, they, they connect the two together. But unlike my wife, my children are always talking. I think you may be able to guess where they picked that up from. (laughs) Physical characteristics aren't the only thing that we uh, express or reflect of our parents. Just by being around our children, they tend to imitate us. It's amazing and sometimes frightening to hear your children in the other room and hear echoes of your own conversation and even your tone. It can also be very convicting, can speak very personally, 
when we start to see similar patterns of sin emerging in our children that look and sound like miniature versions of us. Those are some of the ways we don't like our children to be like us. Maybe there are some family traits that you wish that you did not have. But like it or not, likeness is proof of relationship. And when it comes to God, our Father, and this is the joy, you may have an earthly father or an earthly mother that are not faithful, that are not kind and are not gracious. But if you're a Christian, you have a heavenly father. And when it comes to God, our father, we're called in this passage to reflect our likeness of him. And this is very important. Again, as I was saying in our introduction, that this church is struggling. They've had false teachers come in and deny the gospel. And so they're trying to identify what is a true Christian in this situation. There had been a major division and these false teachers had come and then they had gone from them. And the Apostle John in chapter 2 verse 19 declares why that they left. He said they went up for us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all, all are not of us. In other words, they did not reflect the family of God. They were not Christians. And their sin was exposed. And they were alienated from the family of God. As I said, this letter was written primarily to help this struggling church in Ephesus to distinguish the true marks of a Christ follower or a Christian. And it's therefore very useful for us today to determine what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian congregation following Christ? As you know, many people claim to be Christian. In fact, official estimates put Christianity as somewhere near 2.1 billion people adherents around the world. But as many of us, or most of us, I think, here know, there are sadly many of those who call themselves Christians who bear no family resemblance to Jesus Christ. So I want to focus our attention this evening on these first three verses. And this is really unpacking a wonderful doctrine, the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption into the family of God. And the fact is, if you're a Christian this evening... You have been brought into God's family. So the question is, if you are a Christian, how do you reflect the Father? How do you reflect your family identity? What does it practically look like? Just think about this in practical terms. Without you explicitly telling them, would your friends and co-workers at work know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ this evening? Just by the way that you live your life. Do others see the work of God in you? What is the likeness of God in its reflection? Adoption is God's great gift of love to us as Christians where he brings us the unlovely the deformed, the criminal, the rebel, and names us as his children. And he gives us all the privileges inherent in being called a son or a child of God. And this doctrine is a source of great comfort for the believer, and it should generate joy and wonder 
and commitment to our dear Father. And I wanted to end off our time here this evening, this, the, over these last two weeks, as we have seen God's judgment and his declaration of salvation. I wanted you to see the fullness of that salvation brought forth in this doctrine of adoption, because it is glorious and it is wondrous. This first verse of First John chapter 3 is one of my favorites in all of Scripture. We're going to examine this doctrine of adoption as it's presented here under three headings this evening. First, we're going to see in verses 1 to 2, a father's love. Then secondly, in verse 2, a child's privilege. And finally, a family commitment in verses 2 and 3. Well, first of all, let's look at the father's love. Verses 1 to 3 of this passage comprise a little reflection by John on the love of God, the adopting father. Now, if you know something about the Apostle John, there is recorded by one of his disciples um, just a picture of John's ministry. John was a loving pastor. He was the last of the apostles to die, I think around 80, 90, somewhere around there. And he died uh, in captivity, it was a, but it was a natural death. But as he was getting older, he would be brought into the con- congregation and they, re- they recorded how he pastored them. And one of the things he would say to his people over and over and over again is love one another. Love one another. And central to his message was the love of Jesus Christ. This is central to our identity as Christians, but it was central to his ministry. And when they asked him, you know, John, why are you emphasizing this? Because, and he said, because that is the essence of being a Christian. And here we have John reflecting on the love of God, the adopting father. This is the characteristic that he wanted to instill in his people. And in verse 27 of the previous chapter, John finishes section warning about those who would deceive you. The Antichrist and Antichrist. And by contrast with those wicked beings, John presents your heavenly father as the true model on which to build your life. And the first thing that strikes us as we look at this first verse is John's absolute wonder at the love of the father. He says, see what kind of love. And the language is striking in this context. Some of you might be more familiar with the King James. I grew up on the King James, and I love the way it it does this. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God. Now this word see or behold here is an imperative. It is a command. It arrests the attention. See, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John is just overwhelmed with the love of God. He's like, see, don't you see it? See the love of the Father. You can see it as he unfolds it throughout this much-loved chapter. But there is something about this love that is unique. And it, it's worthy of such notice. You see, the love of God the Father... In the scriptures, 
insofar as He sent His only Son to rescue us from our sins, is something that is absolutely and truly unique to biblical Christianity. The love of God. Every other religion, if you look at it at its core, puts the emphasis not on God, but on man sacrificing Him in some way to some God to obtain salvation through His own efforts. We see this particularly in the major religions that exist today with many adherents. Hinduism is one of those ways. In Hinduism, you follow one of the four ways to achieve moksha, which is Hinduism's version of salvation. Basically, what it means in Hinduism is salvation is to break the, the cycle of death and reincarnation. In Hinduism, you have four ways that you can accomplish this. You can first accomplish it by the way of action. So how do you get saved in Hinduism? Through performing religious ceremonies, duties, and rites. That's one way. There's a second way in Hinduism. You can try and be saved by your mind. The way of knowledge. Which leads you to matcha through philosophical reflection. And there's the way of devotion. You choose one of the thousands of Hindu, Hindu gods to worship and to devote yourself to. Or finally, there is what they call the royal road. The way of meditation and of various yoga techniques, poses, and exercises. Yes, in case you didn't know, yoga is not neutral. It is an expression of religiosity and it is a way of salvation. We might just know it as the downward dog pose. But each of those poses has a particular import. A religious import. A pagan import. But there's Hinduism. There's also Islam. In Sunni Islam, which is 80% of the Muslim world, you do five pillars. Again, very man-oriented. The Shahada, which is where you profess monotheism. That's the first thing that you must do. That there is one God, and Allah is His prophet. Right? There's a, then there's Salat, the prayers, the five times a day prayers. The Zakat, which is the giving of alms. The Psalm, which is fasting, like such as in the, the, the month of Rad, uh, Ramadan. And finally, the Hajj, which is a pilgrimage that you must undertake to Mecca. To worship at the Black Rock. And a Muslim's religious works provide him with his righteousness. Literally, the Muslim believes that at the day of judgment, he is weighed in the scales. And his religious acts are weighed against his righteous acts. And then, depending on whether the scales get tipped or not, he gets to go to heaven. Interestingly, Muhammad even expressed a doubt whether he would go to paradise. He didn't have assurance of salvation. This is the great religions of the world. Not very hopeful, are they? All dependent upon our efforts. All these other religions require you to sacrifice yourself to bring about salvation primarily through your own efforts and works. Biblical Christianity alone has God as the primary actor. Acting entirely on 
His behalf and His initiative for us. In Christianity, God is love embodied. God is love in action. And when we say that love is central to what John is trying to communicate here, and love is central to Christianity, we need to understand what that love is. It's not the gushy-gushy feelings and emotions that we see. No. We see a love that is an action. Something where God acted and came. We love because God first loved us. Our true salvation is completely dependent on His work alone. We see this in chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 7 to 11. We see this, this, this thing. He says, Beloved, don't you love the way John addresses his people? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is Perfected in us. It's truly amazing, isn't it? The love of God. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that has saved a wretch like me. Now this love, as it's even described here, is a self-sacrificial love. And again, this is a different love than what we see in the world. It is not a selfish love. I love you. So you love me. That's really kind of the the, the approach that we see in the world today. It's a tit-for-tat kind of love. I love you, you love me. That's, That's the deal here, right? You scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours. Now you may have met people that twist love. that They try and make you feel in their debt so that they can control you. That you owe them something. But here's the thing. In Christianity, we owe not to each other. We owe everything to God. This helps us both to accept help from other people and to give help to other people. We recognize we need help and we realize the privilege it is to help others, to show love to others because God has loved us. We love because God has first loved us. And this is the true Christian love that the Apostle John expounds throughout this book. It's a love that's bound of practical action. We look over in chapter 3, later on in verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, in actions, and in truth. And this is what he calls us. He says in verse 11 that we are to demonstrate the world for this is the message we have heard from the beginning for that we should love one another. This is very much the message that Jesus brought. They will know that you are my people by the way that you love one another. This is the family 
resemblance. But again, this is a kind of love that is unknown to the world. There's no illustration that is really sufficient to convey the love of God that is present to us in this doctrine of adoption. We can't do it justice. I've thought about this many times. And I think it's, it's, it's a shocking love. If you want to get a sense of what it would mean to love truly as God has loved us, it would be like after tonight's service, let's say you took a little bit of a detour. You take your car and you drive it down. I think it's in St. Philip's. I'm not sure where it is. Where's God's prison? St. Philip's. So you take a little detour home and you go to Dodd's prison and you go there and you sign out the worst criminals that are there. The notorious criminals like Winston Hall, right? The murderers, the child molesters, the rapists. And you sign them out and you ask them to come and live with you in your house. And then when they come to your house and you open the door, you give them each a house key. And you give them a key to your car. And you give them the pin to your bank account. And then, you don't stop there. The next morning, you wake up and you go down to City Hall and you begin the process to make them legally your family and your heirs. That, my friends is a picture of what God the Father does. It's a poor illustration, but it really is a reflection of God's love. That's what God does to sinners like us. Because the distance between us and Winston Hall is not as great as you want to think. You think, I'm not Winston Hall. No way, no way could I have done what he has done. But yes, God holds us accountable. We hate in our heart. We are murderers. If we lust in our eyes and in our heart, we are adulterers. And we are under the same just punishment as any of the criminals in Dodd's prison. Do you begin to get an idea of the love of God? It's scandalous, isn't it? You can't even imagine getting in your car and driving down to Dodd's prison and bringing home criminals with you. But that's exactly what God does. And he brings them into his family. It's a staggering love. And it's a love that the world doesn't understand. They say, don't you know what you're doing? You're crazy. That's impossible. And this is exactly what John tells us, right? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The world does not recognize true Christianity. Doesn't even like it because they don't know truly what it is to have been shown the mercy and the love of God. They don't understand Christians and their willingness to show love to the unlovely because they don't understand God. See, the reason why we love is because He first loved us, He first rescued us. What made you better than anyone else? The answer to that question is nothing. Nothing. Nothing but God's love and His mercy. 
He called you to be a remnant. If you're a Christian this evening, you're part of His family. Praise the Lord. How deep the love of the Father for us. How vast beyond all measure. But this is something the world struggles. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 10, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. Creatures of this earth didn't even recognize their Creator when He walked among Him. But He still did. He came while we were yet sinners to bring forgiveness through the love of God expressed on the cross. One of the things that comes, though, along with the adoption into the family of God and into the love of God is a certain alienation from the world around us. The reality is tonight that if you have come to know Jesus Christ, you belong to a different family. We often refer to the church here in Barbados and the church in Toronto as the family of God, the church fam. And the church is a wonderful thing. You may have a lousy family background. You may have been rejected by your family. Your family may have acted towards you wickedly, but you have the love of the family of God. And that is richer and deeper and more beautiful than anything this world has to offer. We belong to one another. That's why we covenant together. When you become a member of the church of God, it's not a little thing. It's a beautiful thing. Because we covenant to love one another. It's not just we covenant to share the same pew on Sunday. We covenant to carry each other's burdens. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. It is a truly beautiful thing. He turns people that would be strangers, perhaps even enemies, and makes them friends, brothers, and sisters. And we do crazy things as Christians from a worldly perspective. We give away big chunks of our income. We give up one day in seven to worship God in word, song, and action. We don't take every advantage we can of the situation. We don't cheat or lie or steal when it's to our convenience. In fact, we have this annoying habit of confessing our sin. This annoying habit that makes people feel uncomfortable when we are scrupulously honest. Have you ever had that experience? Like, chill out. Come on. You don't need to. You don't need to account for everything that you do. Oh, yes, you do. Why? Not because your employer requires it. Because God requires it. So we're employed not by so much the people of this world, but by God. To worship Him. To enjoy Him. To serve Him. And all of these things that we do are really external manifestations of a real internal change in our hearts. As we've been adopted into Jesus' family, we have different life priorities. We live to find our satisfaction in Him. Not in the things of this world. Not in the accoutrements and adornments that are all around us. Your true satisfaction and joy is found in your relationship with God. Many of you have, several of you have become newly married. 
And there is a great joy in marriage. But let me burst the bubble right now. Marriage is not everything. It is not the ultimate. And in fact, sometimes it makes life harder. It's not the solution to all your problems. Only God provides the satisfaction. When you become a Christian, we become part of God's family. You live to glorify Him, to be like Him. But worldliness is the opposite of this. It too is a heart attitude. It's where we seek to find our satisfaction in other places. When we take even good things and make them ultimate things. But it is only God that has that ultimate claim. So how do we combat this worldliness? How do we resist the temptations to lust after the things of this world? The answer is, again, the cross of Jesus Christ. It's only in the light of the cross, only in the reflection of God's love for us, that we can dull the lust we have for the things of this world. It's only the light of God's amazing grace that we see the heinousness, the wickedness of our defection from our God. It's at the cross that we understand how God views sin. Spoiler alert, he hates it. He hates it so much that he's willing to sacrifice his only begotten son, whom he loves, to cover it. So this amazing love of God does two things at the same time. It alienates us from the world and it drives us to delight in our Savior and His work on the cross for our sins. Quoted this morning from 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our delight. Jesus is what we live And in the light of this staggering love, we begin to see the emptiness of the broken cisterns of our life. Those dumb idols that we return to time after time. The deep-seated self-pity that we sometimes take refuge in. The pride of our own works. Look at me, look at what I accomplished. I'm a somebody. I've done this. The bitterness Bitterness can be a refuge for us as well. The pursuit of all things pleasurable, the lust, the envy, the venting, the gossiping. The cross of Jesus Christ points us away from all these things. The cross is where that transformation happens. I love that hymn, It is well with my soul. Oh, the bliss. Of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. This is what the love of the Father does. It breaks us of our love for the world. As we start to reflect His love, we start to love what He loves and hate what He hates. It changes us. It transforms us. See what love the Father has given to us. When you recognize the mercy of God in bringing you into His family, our gratefulness is a response. 
Well, we've seen the love of our Heavenly Father, but secondly, let us see the privilege we enjoy being His children. What does it mean to become part of God's family? Well, one of the things that's helpful for us to understand is that adoption is the height of the process of redemption. It is the point at which we are no longer strangers to God, but instead that we become His family. The process of being redeemed or bought by God involves a number of steps. We use three theological terms to summarize conversion, to summarize transformation. First, we are justified, justified by God's free grace. Now, this justification addresses the status that we have, the legal status that we have before God as judge. We often visualize it as coming into the courtroom of God. And we stand in the box of the condemned, the one who is under condemnation. And we are guilty. There is no question. We are in the courtroom. But God, because of the work of Jesus Christ, declares us justified. Justified by faith in Christ alone. And at the same time as we are justified, we are also sanctified. That's the second theological term. We are justified and we are sanctified. And sanctification has really two aspects. A definitive aspect and a progressive aspect. The definitive aspect happens when we become a Christian. We are definitively sanctified. We are cleansed of our sin. That doesn't mean that we won't continue to struggle with sin for the rest of our lives. And that's what the progressive sanctification is all about. There's a progressive killing of sin in the Christian's life. But fundamentally, we are justified, legally declared righteous, and then we are sanctified by the work of Christ. And sanctification also declares that the Christian is free from slavery to Satan and newly in bondage to Christ as master. Both of these things happen as we are converted. But adoption speaks of the relationship of the Christian to God as his father. When we are converted, we are justified, we are sanctified, but we are also adopted. As verse 2 of our passage says, we are family now. Beloved, we are God's children. Westminster Shorter Catechism defines adoption this way. It says, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Chew on that for a little bit. Adoption is really the embodiment of God's grace. It's what it looks like and it's staggering. The legal declaration of salvation has gone from the courtroom to the living room. Again, it's like coming before God and he declares you justified. But that's not the end of the thing. When, 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 a, when, a, when a prisoner is declared free, he still has to go somewhere. But this is where the, the judge comes down and says, Okay, son, come with me. And he takes him home. He takes the criminal home. And he gives him the keys. He gives him the inheritance and he legally adopts him. That's the picture of Christian salvation. 
Notice, it has nothing to do with anything that any one of us have done. It's entirely on the initiative of God. And the mercy is all of God. Not because of what we've done, but because He is God. And He is a loving God. God is love. That's what it means in the Scriptures. The loving action of God. And it's stupendously amazing. We've seen in Micah this declaration of judgment. And it's a just judgment. There's wickedness all over Israel. And yet God promises redemption. He promises a Savior. This is something that's untold of. In all of human experience in history, there is nothing. There is no God like this God. There is no mercy. There is no love like this love. It's truly an amazing thing to just look at the texts in the scriptures that speak of this. There There are four main texts. That expound. In addition to what we're seeing here in First John chapter three, there there are four texts which give us an overview of this doctrine of adoption in the New Testament. We'll just look at a couple of them briefly. First of all, we see in the book of Ephesians chapter one, verse four and five, where it talks about predestination. It says, "Even as He chose us in Him." Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Is the Apostle Paul in that great triumphant indicative that he begins the book of Ephesians with? If you look at it in the Greek, there is no punctuation. There's just one long sentence from verse 1 to verse 15. And the Apostle Paul is just overwhelmed with the love of God. He's delighting in all of this. And here in the context of the the covenant love of the Father, this is an adoption that we see, as it says there in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's not like God... Goes down to the SPCA and sees, oh, he's a cute puppy. I'll take him home. Right? It's not an afterthought. It's not like, oh, you know what? Chris, he's an okay guy. Yeah, he's done some good stuff. I'll bring him home. Right? Honestly, that's how Catholicism depicts it in some way. Isn't it? You kind of come part way. And then God says, ah, he's pretty good. I'll bring him the rest of the way. Not at all what the scriptures talk about. Before the foundation of the earth, he adopted, he called us for adoption. Adoption is related to predestination. This is God's purpose for us. Your purpose is to be a child of God. The meaning and purpose for your life is to glorify God and to enjoy him as an adopted person, as a son or a daughter of Jesus. That's your identity. Do we sometimes struggle? In our lives, there's a certain entitlement that comes with being a child of God. There's a certain wonder that comes with it. I love the old British Cornish tin miner, Billy Bray. And he used to announce to people, he would introduce himself, he would say, I'm Billy Bray, son of the king. He was just a poor tin miner, but that's how he viewed himself. And when he was acting in God's behalf, 
he really thought that he deserved the treatment of a king's son. He used to go down to the tin mines every, every week, and he'd come up all sooty, and then he'd spend his weekends preaching the gospel and building churches. And one day he went out to get uh, a pulpit, and he, he went to this place where they were auctioning off pulpits, or auctioning off this, this sort of uh, buffet-type thing that he thought would be a great pulpit. And so he had a certain amount of money, he went to the auctioneer, and he hadn't really understood how auctions worked. So he declared everything on this pulpit. He, he, he set his, his price, that's how much he had, and that's how much he expected to pay, because, well, he's God's son. So he declares it. The auctioneer says it, and says, is there anybody else? And somebody else comes and says, there's more. And offered, like, a few farthings more. And he got it. Billy Bray was very upset. And he expected that God would give that to him because he was there on God's mission. He wanted to build this church and this was the perfect pulpit for it. And he was praying to God and he followed the man home. And he gets to the home and the pulpit doesn't fit through the door. So Billy comes up and says, well, I'll offer you this amount for it if you'll take it to the church and install it for me. And the man gave him the money. Because he expected that God would provide for him. He understood. Like we, we, we talk about struggling with entitlement here. But there's a proper entitlement. When you're a child of God, you ought to expect that God is at work on your behalf. Now that doesn't mean that everything's going to be rosy and that you're going to get whatever pulpit you want. But it does mean that he's working all things. All things. Even the bad things. For your good. Adoption is the embodiment of God's grace. It's what it looked like, and it's, it's staggering. In adoption, we're brought home by God. Pulled out of the pit, dusted off, and brought into the family. We're rebel punks, no more. Out of the courtroom, into the living room. And it's from all eternity. The second passage that speaks of it in the New Testament is the one that Pastor John read for our long gospel reading in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 4-6. And here's the, the fullness of adoption that comes. Jesus' work on the cross raises us up from a childhood status like we were children under the Mosaic Covenant to receive in the fullness of time the benefits of full mature sonship. What that means is that we receive through that great exchange on the cross the credit of Christ's obedience. And we inherit all His privileges. He is the firstborn son. And He is one, all of our inheritance for us. And he freely gives it, he, as he freely gives gifts to the captives in his train. Because of Jesus' work, we receive wonderful gifts. Galatians 4, 4-6, he's the one. Then there's Romans 8, 
Verse 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is the wonderful gift. Wonderful passage. Romans 8 is all about the Holy Spirit. I've been preaching through Romans 8. It's, it's, it's a glorious chapter. We spent almost half a year going through Romans 8. I look forward to going back and finishing it. Because it's glorious. But one of the things that Romans 8, 15, and 16 speak about in our adoption is that the Holy Spirit is one of the gifts. The living presence of God planted in us. Provide us with assurance of faith. See, Mohammed didn't know if he was going to paradise, but you, if you're a Christian this evening, can know that you're going to heaven. Why? Because the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit. You have an assurance that the world does not have. In all of their religiosity, in all of their zeal of the Jehovah Witnesses knocking on doors, trying to earn their way as servants, they can't even get as, as one of the, the 144,000. They're now looking to be servants or, or, or uh, they're looking for a back door into heaven. And they're desperate. But the gospel gives us assurance through the Spirit of God. It enables us to cry, the intimate cry of Abba, Father. Abba, the privilege of calling God our Father. This makes it possible for us to make our way in this challenging earthly life, even as our heavenly home is prepared for us in heaven. Adoption means we get those benefits now. We get to be in God's holy presence. We can come to Him. We can pour out our hearts and know that He hears us and that He responds. Later in Romans, again, 8. It speaks of this and says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is the fullness that this, this doctrine is, is amazing. It's not only a promise that's made to us in eternity that was fulfilled at the cross and extended to us at Pentecost through the work of the Holy Spirit. We have a way to live now. And we have a most glorious future waiting for us. We, we now have a privilege. We now can call God our Abba Father. But the future, it only gets better. Because we go to be with Him. Do you get begin to get this? See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. And this brings us back to our text in verse 2. Which speaks both to the already benefits and the not yet benefits. See, adoption and our conversion as Christians, we live in tension. One of the analogies people talk about being a Christian is it's almost like being engaged. Right? You're locked in. You're going to get married, but you're not there. You don't have the fullness of there. And that's what it's like to be a Christian in this world today. We're locked in. Much more so even than an engaged couple today. We're locked in. We're in covenant relationship. But we haven't received the fulfillment of all of this. Verse 2 tells us that we are God's children now. Beloved, we are God's children now. And that's a wellspring of joy for us. That means is that we're not alone in this life to face all of the challenges and the dangers. We have our Father in heaven. 
Our churches may be small, but our true membership is great in the whole family of God. There is a wider sense of our adoption. We are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. We've been given a tremendous inheritance. What that means is that we get to look at our problems in different ways. Because of this, why do we spend so much time worrying about earthly matters? Many ways, we're called to come to a conclusion. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about worry. And he said, it's not wrong for us to be concerned about our situation. But worry, in many ways, is turning the same things over and over and over and over and over and over in our minds. He says one of the benefits of being a Christian is that we can stop that circular thinking and we can come to a conclusion. But God is here. I'm concerned about my health. But God is sovereign over my health. I'm concerned about the way that my children are going and what they're doing. But God is sovereign over them. Doesn't mean that we're not still concerned, but we we rest because God is there. We are part of his family. He is at work in us. We are children of God and we have a father in heaven who knows exactly what this church needs. Knows exactly what we need in our daily lives. We are children of the king. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Brothers and sisters, we need to remind them. But it's not just the benefits that we have now. It's, it's the best is yet to come. We know that when he appears, verse 2, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now when the Bible speaks about the believer's future, it is this enjoyment of God, this seeing God face to face that is most emphasized. Sin brought us shame into this world. So that we cannot look on God's face without averting our eyes. But the redemption that God gives us in Christ Jesus promises the restoration of direct communication between God and his people. Do you know why God kicked out Adam and Eve out of the garden? It was for their own protection. They were sinful and God was holy. God cannot abide the presence of evil. He will destroy it. So Adam and Eve were taken out and separated from God by their sin. They died in their relationship to him as they would ultimately die in their bodies. That's the awful thing. But that face-to-face relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden is something that we will enjoy. Once again, because of the work of Jesus Christ. Because of his blood shed on the cross, we will have relationship with God again. And this is the amazing thing. The Christian life is something where we are constantly, more and more, becoming like Christ, ultimately. Now, it's not like this sometimes in terms of our progress in the Christian life. Sometimes it's more like this, up and down. But there is an upward trend. And this is something that's so countercultural. And our, our culture worships youth. Many of you are young and vital. Some of you are not. But here's the thing. What we see is that there is, for the older, something to come. The older you are, the closer you are to being in the presence of God. And that's a wonderful thing. We see in Christianity a veneration or an appreciation of those who are older. Not a worship of youth. 
Because the ones who are older have more maturity. Hopefully. Hopefully. But more than that, they will be with God. There's a certain jealousy that we have. I often tell my dad this. He's 82 and he's getting older. We don't know how much longer the Lord will give him. But there's a sense in which he delights in the prospect of dying. Not in the sense that he wants to be away from his family or his grandchildren or any of those things. He loves those things. But he gets Philippians, which is that to die and be with Christ is better by far. So you may not be living your best life now. In fact, many, most of us aren't. Hopefully you're not. <laughs> because your best life is to come. Do you have an eye on heaven this evening? I think one of the things we don't do enough in this life is to contemplate the eternal life that awaits us. We're very focused on the here and now. But the reality is that we will see each other in glory. And more important than seeing all your friends and all of the the Christians and hanging out with the Apostle Paul is that you will be in the presence of Jesus. Sometimes we're blind that this is the goal of heaven, to be with Him. Not what He has to offer us, but to be with Him who loved us. To know perfect love. John Piper once asked this, I think, penetrating question. He says, would you want heaven without Jesus? Right? What do you mean by that? Heaven without Jesus, without all of the things that we think of when we think of now. Oh, I want to fly in heaven. Or, oh, I want to hang out with my friends and relatives. Oh, I want to be without pain and suffering, all those things. And he says, would we really want heaven if it didn't have Jesus? Sometimes I think we have a Muslim view of heaven. Heaven's all about sensual delights and those things. There may be those things in heaven. But it is far greater to be in the presence of Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 puts it this way. He says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. The best thing you can think of heaven is not best enough. Do you see your privilege as children of God? We need this reminder. We need this reminder because this is totally not what our society values. In Toronto, they're tearing down churches for condos. The first mosque in the city of Toronto was a Baptist church. Our culture does not have a have an appreciation for the word of God. It has rejected it. We need to understand that sin is not just out in the world, it's also with us. It's a struggle, but we've been given a great gift. Something that focuses us, that helps us as we struggle with sin. And that gift is the spirit of adoption. We have access to God. You consider the wonderful privilege that you have to pray. Think of what it would be like to be an Israelite. If you want to pray, you've got to go through a priest. You've got to bring an offering. You gotta bring the right offering. It has to be with unpure and unblemished. It was a big thing. But you, as a Christian, as a new covenant Christian, you have Jesus who was your scapegoat. Blameless. So you can enter in at any time and pray to your God. 
You're in relationship with Him. You have a, you have a, a privilege of access to the Father. And it's beautiful. Have you ever seen the privilege of a child as they relate to the Father? Some of you might remember a couple of years ago, there was this viral video of this little girl. And her, her father was being interviewed on the BBC about the North Korea thing. And all of a sudden, as he's being interviewed by, by the BBC, in the background you see the door open and this child walks in like this. And she comes up to the father and the father realizes, and, and the interviewer says, oh, you're, I think your daughter's coming. And the dad's doing this, you know, like in the car. And then all of a sudden you see this horrified mother appear in the background and she grows and she grabs him. And then, then the little baby comes in and he comes in and he comes towards his dad and she pulls them all out and slams the door behind him. But what that conveys is the privilege of a child coming to be with his father. My wife and I experienced this. We're a family of six. We live in a three-bedroom home. My study's in the basement. Sometimes to get just a, a little brief bit of uninterrupted time, we go into my study on Monday mornings to have a morning coffee with each other. And we lock the door. Well, <clears throat> not too long ago, my son, our three-year-old, figured out how to open that locked door. And he comes down and he's like, Mama, Mama, Daddy, Daddy. And he, he's shaking the knob. And then all of a sudden he figures out what he can do to open the door. And my goodness, did he ever look proud when he came through that door. But why would he have a locked door? Why wouldn't he have access to Mom and Dad? They're Mom and Dad. They love him. He has privilege. He has access. And this is what we have. That's a child's privilege and joy. This is our privilege to be with God. To worship Him. To be here tonight. In the presence of our God. To be led in worship. To turn our praise. And remember our identity. Understand this. Does it stir your soul? That's what the doctrine of adoption was designed to do. And what that means. When we start to realize our privilege. As children of God. We also remember our responsibility. We've seen the love of God. We've seen the privilege of the child. But thirdly, the family commitment. This adoption by which we come into God's family is an act of familial relationship. And it's mediated through the triune, the trinity of God. And this is represented. You see, we can't have God if we don't have a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together. We've got the Father who has loved us from all eternity. Represented and embodied in Jesus Christ, paying the price for our sin on the cross. The, the action of love. And applied to us through justification, sanctification, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Through our adoption to be His brother and sister. Adoption, like salvation, is a Trinitarian act. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all engaged. We are brought in to the family of God. Now what does that mean? How does that work? How do we pursue a relationship with Him? Well, John draws a connection here in the latter half of verse 2 and in verse 3. He says this. <clears throat> 
When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Adoption not only gives us entrance into the family of God in his grace, but it reveals the purpose of the law of God for the Christian. You see, law and grace are never separated for the Christian. They're not enemies. They collaborate together. We are saved in order that we may obey and imitate God's holiness. James Packer puts it this way. He says, while it is certainly true that justification frees one forever from the need to keep the law or to try to as the means of earning life. So what he's saying is when we're saved, we're not earning our salvation through our obedience. Right? He says it is equally true that adoption lays on one the abiding obligation to keep the law as the means of pleasing one's newfound father. He goes on to say, he says, law keeping is the family likeness of God's children. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and God calls us to do likewise. Adoption puts law keeping on a new footing. As children of God, we acknowledge the law's authority as a rule for our lives because we know that this is what the Father wants. We're changed with our relationship to the law. Paul Tripp uses an illustration that I think is helpful. He talks about a woman, a single woman coming to work in a factory for this boss. She comes as, as his receptionist. And outside his office, there's a list of rules and regulations. And her relationship to her boss is a professional one. And she looks at those things, and this is the way things are done. And, and in her heart, there may be some grumbling and everything else. It's like, why do we have all these rules and regulations the way this factory is one? But then, ultimately, she, in an appropriate way, gets to know her boss. And in God's providence and timing, she falls in love with him. And they get married. And she gets to know who he is as a man. He's a man of character, a man of grace, a man of thoughtfulness, a man who loves his employees. And that changes her understanding of the law. She understands that he didn't put these laws and these rules in place in order to punish his workers, but in order to bless them, to keep them safe, to watch over them. And that's a picture of what happens to us when we become Christians. Before we're Christians, the law binds us, and, 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 and it is something that, that, that convicts us. But as a Christian, the law is a rule of life. It helps us to live. It helps us to know how we are to act. It calls us to obedience. And in this way, we obey because we are obligated, because we love God. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not as a way of earning your righteousness, but because you now know who I am, that I am the gracious Savior. And we need to understand that being a Christian is not something in name only. John is continually emphasizing this, but in actions and in truth. Only those who are holy will see God. Hebrews 12 says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you are not holy, in some sense, then you will not see God. 
Now that holiness, that sanctification is something that God does definitively when we become a Christian, but progressively also. You can't claim to be a Christian and not live or seek to live or strive against sin and seek to live a holy life. And we're not alone in this effort. We, we are given help. In verse 3 there, we see that members of God's family who have been sanctified in the blood of Jesus have a new ability from the Spirit, the Spirit of God to purify ourselves through the spiritual disciplines to follow God's law for holiness. It says, <clears throat> verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in himself purifies himself as he is pure. This is what the Apostle Paul refers to in Ephesians 2.10. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, our good works and our obedience to the law is not meritorious, but it is something that God has designed for us to do. It is something that he has designed to do to bring us favor. The law and grace are in balance here. We must have a proper understanding of our relation, of our adoption to our law keeping. And this is what our passage here teaches. John connects our adoption with our purifying ourselves according to the law of God. Keeping the law of God should be our delight. It's our God-given, spirit-enabled means of greater and greater fellowship with Him. If you want to be walking in closer relationship with God then you need to conform to God's law and His Word. The law becomes a delight. I think sometimes people don't realize that Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, is all about delighting in the law. Well, how can you delight in the law? Because you delight in the lawgiver. The lawgiver who has taken you out of your wickedness and your rebellion and made you His child. You might be saying to yourself, well, come on, Pastor Chris, what about me? <laughs> Talk about holiness, I don't feel holy. I'm a sinner. I struggle to keep God's law. Am I frozen out? No. Not at all. There is grace to be had. Again, that passage I quoted this morning from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, to sanctify, to purify us from all unrighteousness. And that purification comes from God. It's a work that we are called to pursue, but it properly happens through the work of the Spirit. Grace enables us to keep the law. Our desires for keeping the law flow out of our gratefulness for our adoption as sons and daughters. Really what governs us as Christians is both our duty to obey the law, because that is our relational duty, but also it is our delight to do so. And this is why meditating on the doctrine of adoption is so profitable for us. It helps us to understand why we do what we do as Christians. As we conclude this evening, let's consider how this all comes together. We have an amazing grace. We have the love of God that has made us sons and daughters to Him and heirs to His promises. This love was demonstrated for us on the cross for our sins and is applied to us. And we're called, it's our motivation to purify ourselves as He Himself is pure. 
But this is not an individualistic adoption. We're adopted into the family of God. And what that means is that we have so much more to celebrate as the corporate body together. We are sons and daughters of the king, and such we are this evening. We've been given a gift, the most amazing love ever. What are you going to do with the gifts that you've been given? How does this love change your life this evening? You were a rebel. And if you're a Christian this evening, you're now a son or a daughter in Jesus Christ. You've been given new life. Your call this evening is to be like God. Be holy as I am holy. Resemble me. That's what God is calling us. To reflect His likeness. To do as He did. To pursue Christ with all diligence. To reflect His likeness. To delight in your family resemblance. Because you're no longer a stranger to God. You're His child. You've been brought in. Into the fold of His amazing love. Let me just say this to you tonight. If you're an unbeliever, all of this that we've been speaking about leaves you an orphan. If you do not know this love, if you do not know the grace of God given to us in salvation, then you're an orphan from this love. You're outside on the street looking in. But you've been given a picture of that love this evening. And God is not one whose house gets full. In my Father's house there are many rooms, many mansions. I go there to prepare a place for you. If you're an unbeliever this evening, don't stand on the outside. Come into the family. Come into the relationship with Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Remember, you don't have to have a degree in theology to understand All you need to know is your need of Him. All you need to know is your desire to be in His family. Remember what Jesus says. He says, all that the Father has promised me will come to me. And he who comes to me, he will in no way cast you out. So if you're not in the family of God, come. Cry out to Him. He is your Father. And He will receive you. He will not turn you away. Because of Jesus Christ. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ this evening, remember the access that you have into the benefits of His grace. Remember this gift of adoption and delight in the family of God. God has done great things in our midst in the year and a half. We have a new church. God has brought us together and He's united us from disparate and different places. And He is bringing us together and He's sanctifying us. As He reveals our sin, as we rebuke one another, as we work through these things, as we bear one another, He is at work in us. He is uniting us to Himself. We are the family. We have the privileges of that family. May we reflect more and more as a church here the love of Jesus Christ. May that be the defining thing. When people come to CRBC, may they be overwhelmed by the love of Jesus Christ. 
Because we have been bought with a price. Because we've been shown the love of God. We need to show the love of God to others. That is our testimony. That is how the world will recognize us. Because we have been brought into the family of God. We have been shown His love. We can show others that amazing love. As you go out into your workplaces this week, as you go out and as you talk to those friends and family members that need the Lord Jesus Christ, help them to see the love of Christ. Not just with your words and your clever arguments, but your love. You know, when my, my uncle was converted, the uncle whose name I bear, Christopher, he was the first converted in my, my father's house. Do you know what really made a difference? My, my father had grown up in English Anglicanism, and he'd heard all kinds of intellectual arguments, but he saw a big difference in his brother. Because when his brother used to come home, he'd bring home sticky buns. Sticky buns. He'd buy them at the bakery. He didn't have very much money. And normally, in their family, nobody shared. But he brought that home, and he'd come home, and what he'd do? He'd make a great big pot of tea. What a more English thing to do. And he would wash the dishes afterwards. And my dad, even though he was rejecting Christianity, he couldn't argue with the change of the transformation that had happened in his brother. It bothered him. Because it didn't fit. He didn't understand it. But what he saw was the love of Christ. And Chris would show him. He would pursue. And my dad would, would mock him. He'd laugh at him. And my, my uncle would keep at him. He'd keep pointing him to Jesus Christ. Dad just was overwhelmed with the relentlessness of his love. It was something that they weren't used to in his family. There was a lot of wickedness. But because his brother had been brought into the family of God, he showed forth the love of God. And I want to encourage you as young people, as a young church, what will make a difference in Barbados is not just doctrinal truth, but love in action. Little children love not in, in words and talk, but in actions and in truth. Realize the benefits of your adoption. Delight in them and act upon that reality. Act upon this. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Be like Christ. As you've been shown love, show love to the glory of God the Father. Amen.